From creation to the flood to the patriarchs to Egypt, join me, Pastor Hook, as we go through Genesis, the backstory to the beginning. But anyway, so we are going to study Genesis today. We are in the book of Genesis. I have decided I could probably go another five months on Genesis 1, but then we'll never finish the book of Genesis. So we are going to continue on. We're actually going to go to Genesis 2. I know, shock. Uh, we're going we're gonna to look at Genesis 2. There's a lot of good stuff in Genesis 2. I could probably go five months in there too, but we are going to, uh, we're going to go to Genesis 2. So uh, thanks for being, being with us this morning. And uh, we are going to go to Genesis 2. And so that is um, where we're headed. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was none to work, there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for the food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good, aromatic, and resin, and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So, uh... <laughs> This is Genesis, the, this is Genesis 2, and uh, what you'll notice right off the bat is that this seems to be a different take on the creation story. If you'll remember in Genesis 1, 
we saw the seven days of creation where God spoke and everything was created and we have the sky and the sun and the moon, the stars, the land, the dry land, the wet land, the animals, the fish, and then man. And all of that was done in six days and God rested on the seventh day. But now we're in Genesis 2 and this is also a take on creation, but it's a different take than happened in Genesis 1. Uh, Probably the best way to understand this is if you look at the Gospels. We have four Gospels that talk about the life of Jesus, right? And each author of the Gospel writes, uh, puts the order of the narratives of Jesus in slightly different order to emphasize different things. We just went through the Gospel of Matthew. And the thing that Matthew had more than anything was that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. So Matthew is always quoting the Old Testament and he puts the stories in a certain order. Well, this is another uh, look at creation, but instead of being kind of like the seven days of creation, this one is a little bit more, I guess you could call it poetic. um, And it is more of a focus. Starting now with this creation story, we're actually beginning a narrative that takes us all through the through the through the Garden of Eden and sin and uh, and redemption and all that sort of thing. So we're kind of starting a new story that continues beyond creation and goes into what happens to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and all that sort of thing. So this this beginning, what we just read, is is the beginning of a new arc of a narrative that actually goes through. Uh, Genesis 2 and continues on. And it is slightly different than Genesis 1. Well, it's not slightly different. It's it's dramatically different. The, the things that are emphasized are dramatically different. I, I think one of the first uh, things that you'll notice is, uh, I guess I can go back here and look at it, but uh, it's, it's this. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. So the first thing we know is that in the beginning, God created, and that God in Genesis 1.1 is the word Elohim. But here in Genesis 2, verse 4, it's now the Lord God. And if you look at this, it is actually, uh, we are using the proper name of God here. It's, it's, uh, it's the word Yahweh. Y-H-V or W-H, Yahweh. And this is the Hebrew name for God. It's four letters, Y-H-V-H. And this is all throughout scripture. This is the actual name of God. So my name is David. Uh, My kids have each niche names. God has a name in the Old Testament, and this is the four letters Y-H-V-H. And so in Genesis 1, it's just Elohim. Here, it's Yahweh Elohim. So we've added the personal name of God into this story. Now, what's interesting is that uh, I took Hebrew back when I was uh, living in Denver, and uh, my Hebrew instructor, uh, Hebrew instructor, really spent a lot of time about this this name of God, because if you know anybody who is Jewish, they actually do never they never pronounce the name of God. Uh, it is too holy for them. As a matter of fact, whenever the name of God is written on a piece of papyrus, that papyrus can never be destroyed. Uh, it has to be buried. Uh, 
so that is why when they found these Dead Sea Scrolls, they found jars and jars and jars that they opened up and had all these scrolls. Well, why would they put scrolls in jars? Why would they spend uh, so much money on a jar and put a scroll in it and hide it away? Why not just bury the thing or you know get rid of the thing? Because once the name of God exists on a scroll, you cannot destroy it. It is that holy. Uh, and honestly, I I resonate with that. I love uh, I love the idea that God is so holy in and of Himself that He is uh, so much uh, in awe that He should command so much of our respect that we should never ever uh, destroy His name. If if His name is written on anything, we should never destroy that. I mean, there's there's some sort of inner uh, satisfaction I get by saying that God is so holy that we can't even speak his name. Now, that that's the way Jewish people are today. They never say the name of God. And this has been this way predating the time of Jesus, right? You just don't ever say the name of God. So that's interesting then when you are reading a Hebrew text and you come up, if it's Elohim, you can certainly say Elohim. But when it comes up to these four letters that have the name of God, you never say the name of God, right? So you come to this point, well, what do you say? So in the Hebrew tradition, there are two ways to handle this. One is the most common way to say the name of God is to say Adonai. Adon, which is Lord, I, which is the suffix, which means my. So it's Adonai, it's my Lord. So you would come up to the word Yahweh, and when you reach that word, instead of saying the word Yahweh, you would say, my Lord. Uh, and that's the way you read it. Except sometimes in scripture, it's my Lord Yahweh. So you'd end up saying, my Lord, my Lord, <laughs> uh, which would be kind of strange. And so another way you can come, you can say that word when you read it in scriptures to say Hashem, which is the name. So in the Old Testament, if you are Jewish and you're reading it in Hebrew, actually from left to right, and you're reading it and you come up to the word that is the proper name of God, instead of saying the proper name of God, you say, you say Adonai or you say Hashem. Or in the English, sometimes we'll say Lord. And what's interesting is in our Bible, uh, if it is all capitalized, L-O-R-D, in some versions, that means that it's, that it's the actual proper name of God, but it's been translated to Lord, but then they show that by saying L-O-R-D, all in capital letters. Now, where we are here, it isn't all in capital letters. It's, it's in lowercase letters. But in many, many places and in very versions of Scripture, it'll say Lord, all in capital letters. That's one of the ways you can know that if you're not reading it in the Hebrew. So uh, it, 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 is, um, it is actually quite offensive. Uh, and so to, to say the actual proper name of God uh, to a Jewish person, this they, it 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 would almost be if we're cursing uh, or saying uh, you know the using the Lord's name in vain uh, for us, you, how that kind of makes us uh, tense up a little bit. And and the same thing is true as if you're Jewish and you hear the actual name of God, uh, they tense up a little bit because they never speak it. They either say Adonai or Hashem or whatever. They just don't speak the name of God. If they're if they're um, writing the name of God, even in English, they'll put a G and then they'll put a dash and they'll put a D. 
because they don't want to say the name of God. And, and you could say maybe they're going overboard a little bit, but I think it's really kind of cool that they, that they show so much respect to God that they never say his proper name. So I took Hebrew in, uh, when I was in Denver at Denver Seminary, and, um, and the guy who taught the class, there were oftentimes in the class Jewish people. So uh, it was, he never said the name of the person, the name of God. That was just a thing that he did. Uh, and I think that out of respect, that's probably a good idea. So I don't normally ever, you know, say the personal name of God, except it's hard to explain this concept without saying the personal name of God. And just as a side note, um, because they never spoke the name of God, uh, we're not exactly sure how the name of God is pronounced. Now, this is interesting too. It's four letters, Y-H-V-H. And uh, in, in the Hebrew Bible, the the Hebrew Bible is written, the, the old ancient texts of the Hebrew Bible are only written with consonants. There, is, uh, there are no vowels per se in the, in the Hebrew language. So the text that we have uh, comes to us with just consonants. Now imagine if we were to read a piece of scripture and we were to take out all the vowels would we be able to understand it? And the answer is, well, probably we could. We could, we could kind of get the words. If we saw TH, we'd say, well, that's probably the. And if we saw heavens and it was HVNS, we, you know, the heavens, the HVNS, we probably could figure that out. So we could read it. The problem is, is that we're not exactly sure how to pronounce it because Pronouncing a words requires the vowels. It could be heavens or havens or hovens or something like that. It's, and so, uh, and so because papyrus is so expensive and hard to produce, they would take out all the vowels and they would just write with the consonants. And that was the way they could cram as many words onto the papyrus as they possibly could. Well, over time... So if you wanted to read it, if you wanted to read that text, you act, first of all, you had to be able to read. But secondly, you had to be a person who understood the proper pronunciation of these words because it wasn't on the page. And so it wasn't just learning the words. It was also learning the proper pronunciation of these words and the orders of these words and knowing when, when it was this way and when it was that way because you were a scholar in the Hebrew language. So that's why you had, you had people that learned how to read and then learned how to read the Hebrew text. Uh, so that is the way the Hebrew language works. And so it wasn't until after the time of Jesus, it was called the Masoretes. And I'm not entirely sure. I think they were about 700 AD, but maybe they're 300 AD. I can't remember. But they're called the Masoretes. And they realized... Uh, by that time, papyrus was not as expensive and that they didn't know, uh, they, they realized that they had to preserve the pronunciation of all these texts and come to a standardization of all these words of how it's pronounced. And so what they would do is they would take the Hebrew text that they had and they would go back and write the vowels underneath each of the consonants. So you have the word 
And then underneath the vowel, or sometimes even above it, they would put the vowels above the consonants. And that was a way that they could preserve the pronunciation that had been handed down and kind of standardize it and conform it. Uh, it was called the Masoretes. And so this is called the, the early text that we have with the Hebrew Bible. It's called the Masoretic text. And in that text, we have a standard form. So we now know how to read the Hebrew text because the Masoretes preserved how that was supposed to be read. So um, all of that is to say that, but when they came to the word uh, for God, the personal name of God, they didn't put the vowels of the name of God. So we don't know how to pronounce the name of God. We assume that it's Yahweh, but it could be something else because the vowels aren't there. And, and to add one more complication, um, in the text, if they wanted to say, uh, when they came across the personal name of God and they wanted to say that personal name, they had to choose. Do we say Hashem, which is the name, or do we say Adonai, which is my Lord? Which of those two ways do we take the name of God and pronounce it? And so the way that the Masoretes said to do that is they would take the vowels from Adonai and they would put them in the word Yahweh. And that way you knew to pronounce the word Yahweh. Or they'd take the vowels from Hashem and put it into Yahweh and you'd know to pronounce it Hashem. So you're reading along in the scripture and all of a sudden you come up to the personal name of God and do you say, uh, do you say Hashem or do you say Adonai? Do you say my Lord or do you say the name? And so the little vowels that are on the word would tell you. Now I say that to you. Oh my goodness, I'm just going down a rabbit hole, but oh well, mine as well. We're, we're not taking any particular pace. What's interesting is that if you take the personal name of God, Yahweh, and you take the vowels from Adonai, and you put those vowels on the personal name of God, Yahweh, you end up with a word that is actually called Jehovah. And so when we talk about God as being Jehovah, that is basically uh, that is basically the personal name of God, Yahweh, with the vowels of Adonai, or my Lord, kind of stuck on there, and it creates the word Jehovah. But Jehovah is not the name of God. Jehovah is kind of a compilation of two words stuck together um, that really isn't either of them are the word of God. But Jehovah was kind of passed down to us for the last three, four hundred years. And so that is still, you know, part of our lexicon. Uh, and many people will call Jehovah as the personal name of God because that's what it actually is in Scripture. It's kind of written as Jehovah, but it's not really Jehovah. It is actually a different, it's, it's Yahweh or however we're supposed to pronounce Yahweh. And, um, and Jehovah is just kind of two words coming together. So um, that's a little bit of a history lesson about, about the personal name of God. And as you're reading the Bible and you see L-O-R-D and it's all capitalized, that is the personal name of God that's been translated to my Lord and it shows up as Lord in Scripture. So that is a long uh, explanation about that, but I think it's helpful. I think it's helpful to know that there is a personal name of God. And right here, it changes in Genesis 2 
because now instead of saying Elohim, which is the, the generic term for God, it's now Yahweh Elohim or Jehovah Elohim or Adonai Elohim uh, in this. So we're now starting a new narrative and we now have the personal name of God. So uh, it says no shrub had yet appeared. Now the order of creation is a little bit different. If you remember in Genesis 1, the first thing to be created was the universe and then it was the stars and the skies uh, and the sky uh, and then it was the fish and the animals and the plants and all that and then it was man, right? But right here, it, it's the order of creation is a bit different. The first thing to really come up is, is man, which is interesting. And a lot of people debate about why there are two different levels, you know, orders of creation and why would Moses write it differently. But, but Genesis 1 is kind of one take of creation. It's kind of, I look, the way I look at it is that Genesis 1 is like a, a bird's eye view, an overview of kind of creation. Uh, and it might be a, a chronological because you can't have man, right, without plants and animals and all that sort of thing. I mean, it, it does need to be in that kind of chronology that we see. But this one, starting with Genesis 2, is a different take. Man is the pinnacle of creation. And so he's given much more uh, elevated status in this second story of creation. It's all about man. And it's all about man and women. Uh, and they're created very, very good. But then something happens. And we actually get into that next uh, when we get into the next chapter. So a lot of people, you know, uh, say, well, you know, which is it, which, you know, why are there two to creation stories? Well, they have two different purposes. It's like each gospel has a, diff a different purpose. Uh, well, each creation story has a different purpose. And this one now is the purpose of this one is to talk about man and how man is the pinnacle of creation is actually going to do something here. Uh, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So we have a little bit of a different take on how God created man. You almost get this sense that God is this potter, right? And he's walking upon the earth, and he picks up clay, and he forms it into the shape of a man. You know, he forms the face and the eyes and the legs and all that sort of thing and sets man down. And then he goes up and breathes life into man, and man becomes alive. Um, I I uh, I like this description of man because, uh, as I've mentioned before, when it comes to creation, you have to you know people come down on three areas of creation. You know, are we are we evolutionary creationists? Are we uh, young earth creationists or old earth creationists. And if you're wondering what I'm talking about, go back and look through yesterday's video or the di video before. Um, but one of the questions that comes up is when God created man, did he create man as a fully formed human man like in his 20s or something like that? And, if, and we almost get the idea here that he creates a man. I mean, he didn't create an infant, right? He created a man and he breathed life into the man. And then we'll see he creates man and woman. They breed and they create more children. But if he can create man as 20 years, then he could create the universe, you know, as 20 years old, you know, 20 billion years. I mean, he could, he could create it with a history 
that really isn't there. So anyway, that's a big philosophical discussion. But the fact that man breathes life into, into man, you know, takes this clay, forms man out of the dust of the ground and breathes life to create a living being. Now that's, that in and of itself is also an interesting point too. Because if you think about it, everything that we are as mankind, <laughs> all the atoms, all the carbon, the oxygen, the hydrogen, everything that we have in our body is just stuff that you find out on the ground, right? It's, this is not complicated materials. It's mostly carbon. There's water, so there's hydrogen, there's oxygen, there's carbon. There's a few other elements and all of that. But the amazing thing about, about man, about life, is that it's been put together and ordered together in this amazingly complex system. So you take, you take the, the elements that you could, I could probably walk out in my backyard and get a bucket of dirt. And I bet everything that life is could be found in that bucket of dirt. Maybe some plants, you know, whatever. But it's the ordering of it and putting it together and then breathing life into it. And scientists have been trying for years and years and years and years and years to try to create life in a test tube because the basic building blocks are all there, but they can't get, they cannot create life. It's, it's just something that has eluded us, which you would think, what year are we? We're in 2020 and we've been in the scientific method for, for 150, 200 years trying to put everything together and trying to create life and we just simply can't. We can't even create bacteria type life. I mean, it is, it is pretty phenomenal when you think about it, the fact that something is living uh, from all this dead material and we can't replicate that process even with all the complex systems and understanding that we have. But as I mentioned previously in previous videos, uh, man, life is pretty complex. It's not as simple as just a few atoms coming together. If you start to look even at cellular biology, just look at a one cell organism and really take it apart and look at it. It is one of the most complex organisms that there is. And to kind of recreate that, it is, uh, we, we can't do it. We simply can't do it, which I think is absolutely amazing. I, I, I just, that's why I call it the miracle of life because it truly is a miracle. Uh, and then where does God put man? He puts him in the Garden of Eden. And uh, we're, given a, we're given a little description of where the Garden of Eden is. Uh, it's, by, it's by four rivers, right? It's the Pishon River, it's the Gihon River, it's the Tigris and the Euphrates. Well, we know where the Tigris and the Euphrates are, right? It is in the Middle of East, it's in Iraq, uh, it's near Baghdad, and so if you follow the book of Genesis and say, where did it all come from? It's between the Tigris, it's near the Tigris and the Euphrates in Iraq. Now, people have always asked me if I could travel anywhere in the world, where would I want to go? And there's two places I want to go. First is I'd love to go to Baghdad. I, I don't know if it's ever going to be safe in my lifetime without being in the military to go to Baghdad. Perhaps or perhaps not, I don't know. But why Baghdad? It's because according to scripture, that's the cradle of life. It all came from that area. Uh, and we know that because that's kind of where Adam and Eve are. But just to be, just to stand between the Tigris and the Euphrates River 
uh, and just feel the presence of God and spend some time in quiet solitude with God uh, at the place where creation began would fill my soul with incredible joy. Uh, the other place I'd like to go is uh, Constantinople, um, modern day Istanbul. I really want to go there too because that was the cradle of Christianity for a thousand years. Uh, and there's so much history there that I'd love to be in those two places. So um, those are those are pipe dreams, you know, I understand. But uh, but someday it would be it would be if I ever am blessed, that would be a huge blessing is to go to Baghdad or Istanbul or uh, uh, Constantinople. Anyway, so uh, so that's that's where it all began. Uh, is between the Tigris and the Euphrates. And uh, then God puts man in a garden. And uh, we uh, are no longer in that garden. The garden doesn't exist anymore. We can't find it. Uh, people have wondered, how is it that these four rivers are kind of all together because they don't exist? I mean, th th there's other rivers, but the Tigris and Euphrates are there, but these others aren't there. And it's like, where are all these rivers? And is this historically accurate? And, and that sort of thing. The thing I can tell you is that Luther looked at this issue and so did Calvin. And they, they realized that after the flood, after the worldwide flood, the whole entire landscape and geography of the whole, whole entire area changed. Uh, and so that, that what Luther believed is that after the flood, the Tigris and Euphrates were still there, but the other rivers kind of disappeared because the whole landscape changed after the flood. May or may not be the way it happened. I don't know. But so, uh, but the story gets really, really interesting from this point on. And I mean really, really interesting. So we're going to stop it here and uh, we'll pick it up again on Monday with, uh, with this incredible story. Again, don't forget to join us for worship this uh, weekend. And also don't forget to fill out the community survey. And uh, I don't know if we've posted it yet, but if not, I'll make sure we get it posted on this video or we'll post it again on Monday. Uh, we got to get it finished by Wednesday so that we can start to process this and create what I think is going to be a phenomenally good event for us a week from Sunday. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and close this in prayer. Dear God, uh, thanks for being with us this morning. God, you are holy. You are so holy that we as man have feared to even say your name. But we also know that you love us and that you care for us, and that you sent your son Jesus to redeem us, protect us, and bring us into your kingdom. And for that, we thank you. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for uh, the story of Genesis uh, and the story of our beginning. Be with us in our world in this time be with us over the weekend, keep us safe, and bring us back together again on Monday. In your 